0: Welcome to the Race Through Space read-along podcast, written and hosted by David Hawk. Welcome back to the Race Through Space read-along podcast. My name is David Hawk, and I'm the author of the Race Through Space, which is available on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and Audible. On the last episode. We left off just as I had put the finishing touches on the Race Through Space screenplay. She was beautiful, but now I was faced with two problems. First and foremost, what was I going to do with it? Sure, finishing the story was an amazing accomplishment, but I didn't want to delinquish in obscurity as I sat in the Race Through Space file folder on my computer. This story was meant for people to experience, especially kids. A thought came to mind. At the time, Stranger Things had just come out and had become a phenomenon. Maybe, just maybe, there are producers and directors looking for the next Stranger Things. There was one director that I hoped would be looking to tackle a project with such size and scope as the race through space. That was Kevin Smith. He would have been the perfect creator for my story. He lives and has made his name as a commentator on pop culture. He grew up watching the same movies that I did. And he also noticed that our world was ripe for an adventure story. But he wasn't the only one. Hollywood production companies put out the call for scripts. So, for several weeks solid, I emailed my screenplay to as many producers and agents that I could. Two years later, and I still haven't received a single reply. I also tried every possible way to get in touch with Kevin Smith and his company, Smodco. I tried emailing his business manager, I tried Googling his email, and I even tried to tweet him. Sadly, that was to no avail. The difference between failure and success is all in how you adapt. I wasn't getting any love when I sent my screenplay out, but what if I brought it to Hollywood and tried to shop it out there? Then another idea hit me. Kevin Smith has a podcast that's recorded in front of a live audience. It's called Hollywood Babylon, and is way too inappropriate for kids to listen to. At the beginning of every show, Smith and his co-host, Ralph Garman, who's also the namesake for the AI character Ralph, they take requests from folks who have come a long way to attend their show. I looked at the show schedule and found one that was just far enough away that I could put my trip together. The race through space was going to Hollywood. Well, maybe. Going to Hollywood requires a lot of money, of which I didn't have nearly enough. I could have saved up for the trip, but I risked losing them enough. Then I thought, maybe I could crowdsource my trip. I threw out a plea for help on my GoFundMe, and I was blown away by the response. Not only did I accomplish another goal, but it also showed me that I have the best friends and family that anyone could hope for. I set my trip to Hollywood. This was a working trip. The plan was that once I got there, I would begin to work on the second installment of the Race Through Space Trilogy. The week before my trip, I would send follow-up emails and tell everyone the dates that I would be available for a pitch meeting. I wasn't deterred by the silence. I just knew that something great was going to come out of this trip. Then, before I knew it, the trip was here. I had multiple sets of my screenplay, I had a fresh stack of business cards, and I was ready to go. The night before I left, my son and I made the last check through the screenplay to make sure there were no mistakes. He gave me a big thumbs up, and it was Dante approved and ready to go. Hollywood and L.A. were wonderful. The sun shined every day, and when I wasn't writing my next screenplay or making calls to local contacts, I was able to explore some of the city. I was afraid to drive because I didn't know the city very well. But eventually I made it downtown, and I was able to experience all the incredible city it had to offer. Then, towards the end of the trip, was the podcast recording. It was up at a comedy club north of LA in a town called Oxnard. My hotel was right on the ocean, and I spent a couple hours watching the tide roll in and out. It was the most beautiful things that I've ever seen, and it's an image I carry with me to this day. The night of the show, I brought copies of my screenplay with me. I must have looked like a goofball carrying two large binders around with me, but I didn't care. In another hour waiting, Kevin and Ralph were finally introduced. My heart began to race a million miles an hour. I was nervous, and my palms began to sweat. This is the moment I'd finally get to meet one of the most influential people I've ever known. The show started, and the segment where they took requests came and went without calling on me. And there I was, left sitting at my table with two large binders. The show was great. But it was hard not to be disappointed. And up to that point, I hadn't heard from any agents or producers the entire trip. And now I hadn't been called upon during the show. I kept telling myself not to be deflated. That I just had to keep trying. That was the key. Giving up would be super easy, and and normally that's what I would have done. But that was the old me. The new me adapted and kept moving forward. So, after the show was over, I noticed a small crowd of people waiting by the side door into the comedy club. I knew they were waiting for Kevin and Ralph to come out. An hour later, almost everybody had left, convinced that they weren't coming out when the side door opened. Kevin Smith came out, saw the small crowd, and came over to us. He said that he loved to take some pictures and sign some autographs. I think that was the moment I was the most nervous. Again, I could have lost my nerve and left. But if I quit now, I will let all my friends and family down, and I would always regret it. So I lugged my binders through the line, and it was finally my turn. I practiced what I'd say to Kevin when I met him. Hi, Mr. Smith. My name is David Hawk, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. I crowdfunded a trip to come see you tonight and to give you the screenplay that you inspired me to write. You can call me Kevin, he replied. Man, I'm sorry I can't take your script. Union rules. But that's super cool you wrote that. Thanks, man, he said to me. I was turned down once again. At least he was super cool about it. Him and I took several selfies, and then it was time for me to move on. But before I left, he said, Hey man, just keep moving forward. If no one else wants to make it, do it yourself. That's what I did. That right there made the trip a success. Just keep going forward. He was absolutely right. I needed to keep moving. The next morning, I recounted the tale of my interaction with Kevin Smith to my wife, and she told me that maybe the right thing to do was to turn a screenplay into a book. Just as she has been all along, she too was absolutely right. As I stepped off the plane after my trip, I was more motivated than ever, and I knew the direction I needed to go. Not only that, I had an email waiting from a director, saying that she would read my script and give me notes, even if she wouldn't make it. And that's where we'll pick up next time. Today I'll be concluding the first Race to Space novella. Other than a dozen pages of the Race to Space 2, this is the last part of the story derived from the screenplay. After that, everything was written for the intent of publishing it as a book. Today I'm starting on Chapter 12 of the Race to Space trilogy. If you guys are following along, I am reading chapter 12, page 63. That was all the proof Marie's mother seemed to need. She agreed to let Marie go on her mission. Miss Arroway grabbed her daughter and held her tight. Neil's mother did the same to him. Marie's mother reluctantly let her daughter go, Tears streamed down both of their cheeks. Baby girl, I love you. You're the smartest person I've ever known. If you get into any scary situations, use that brain to get you out. You hear me? When you see your father, tell him that I love him, Neil's mother said to him, and tell him that you're going to be a big brother. Neil's jaw dropped, and he grabbed his mother. That's awesome, I'll tell him, he said. The four of them came together for a group hug. Nyla walked up and wrapped his long arms around them. Talek, Jayla, and Kythorn did the same. The group hug lasted for several seconds before they finally separated. Neil and Marie walked their mothers to the front door of the lab, watched them get in their car, and then take off down the dirt road away from the lab. They watched the car carrying their mothers until it was out of sight. Later that night, a full moon shined on Neil through the upstairs sunroom in his father's lab. There was a distant clap of thunder. Neil opened his eyes and he found himself at the lake once again. A raging thunderstorm barreled down on him in the distance. Its black clouds boiled and rotated. There were countless lightning strikes traveling from cloud to cloud and from the clouds to the ground. A tremendous crack of thunder ricocheted across the valley like an explosion. The sound startled Neil. He turned his head to the left and saw his father casting his line into the lake. When his dad looked over and saw Neil, he dropped his pole in the water and then pulled Neil into his arms. I was wondering if we were going to meet again, said his father. Neil and his father waded to the shore. The wind kicked sand up around them. In the horizon, a microbush exploded over the valley beyond the lake. Neil looked back towards the oncoming star. That seems ominous. I take it things aren't going well, Neil asked. Yeah, not great, his father admitted. The planet we're stranded on is completely lifeless. While I was trying to find shelter, I stumbled upon the ruins of a city that's been deserted for centuries. That's good, right? You found a place to stay until I can get to you, Neil said. No, that's bad, said his father. There was once an advanced civilization on this planet, now they're gone. There's no life of any kind. Who knows if it's because of radiation or something to do with why their sun is so dim? Where are you? You wouldn't believe me if I told you, Neil said. I'm at the lab right now with Nyla. I'm taking his rescue party up to Lone to meet with Yima, and they're going to find Maya." "'Neil,' said his father. "'Will is really hurt. His lacerations have become infected, and I don't even know if the infection is from Earth or if it's an alien one. I need you to understand that he will most likely die." Neil nodded. He turned to face the storm. When he turned back, he saw that the lake blended into a dim, brown world. In the distance Neil saw a man in a red cold weather gear dragging a makeshift stretcher. Another crack of lightning brought Neil back to the lake. He turned his head toward the oncoming storm and standing in front of him was a hulking Darrow warrior. The warrior raised its spear and aimed it at Neil. She blinded me with science! Science! Neil's alarm went off and his eyes flashed open. He looked at his phone and saw that he had been asleep for the past 10 hours and had missed five separate alarms. He heard what sounded like hoots and grunts coming from the lab below. He left the sunroom and saw Nyla, Jayla, Kythorn, and Talaq up and talking. Neil put in his translators and joined the group. Soon Marie joined them as well. Has your device recharged? Nyla asked. The wormhole device is at 98% power. It is ready to initiate the wormhole, Ralph said through Neil's translator. We're good to go, Niels told the team. As you heard, in Chapter 12, Neil has another one of his visions with his father. These are used as a vehicle to quickly tell about what's happening to Neil's father and also what he's been up to during the events of the book. And it's also first revealed that Dr. Lowell was on the brink of death due to his injuries. Chapter 13 Nihilus stood up and addressed the team. It will be dark when we walk back through the wormhole to Simia. We need to be vigilant for any predators. Talek, you take point. Kythorn, take rear. Jayla and I will take the flanks. Neil, Marie, you will stay in between us, he said. Neil took a deep breath. He stood in front of the team and he brought the wormhole device to life. He tapped the scream and initiated the wormhole. Without error, the wormhole opened and the floral scent of the Simeon jungle came wafting through. Taluk ran through the Singularity first, followed by Jayla, Marie, Neil, and Kythorn. Sof, who had expanded and was glowing red again, sprinted by Nyla. Neil looked back as the wormhole collapsed and the lab disappeared. Taluk took the lead. He walked quietly ten feet ahead of the search party. Jayla flanked Neil to the left. She swayed her magna rifle in every direction. Nyla carried a light apparatus that had four light ends, illuminating the jungle a hundred feet in every direction. The transport to alone was two miles ahead. They started walking. Neil swiveled his head from side to side, and he heard the sound of wings fluttering just outside the reach of the lights. Neil looked over at Marie, worried. The sound intensified until there was a loud crunch that came from the rear. Everyone turned towards the sound, and jogging up from behind them was soft, with something dead in his mouth. The creature looked like a dragonfly with four wings, two round eyes, and a mouthful of sharp teeth. The swarming sound dissipated, and the team reached the transport. Talek hailed the transport while Soth lay nearby, eating his catch. The door to the transport opened, and Yima stood inside. Nyla and Yima embraced each other. Neil and Marie ran from behind and threw their arms around them both. Yima took them into the transport, where it descended to alone. There were three waichu soldiers waiting for them at the transport platform. They carried Magnum rifles that were longer than the Tryon rifles, and they were scoped. The three of them walked up to the transport, and the team formed a circle around Yima. Everyone found silent as he began to speak. Today, we embark on a perilous journey, deep into enemy territory. The reason we do this is for one simple reason. For Maya, our leader in the heart of the Waichu, he said. The rescue team shouted, for Maya, in unison. We go into the forest, dark and quiet. We have not detected any Daro nearby they will be there. We'll check Maya's beacon until she is found. She's not far from the edge of the track, but once we lose the lights, we will be in Daro territory. Nyla, your people will take the left and the rear. The white will take the right and point. Saf will run ahead and keep watch for us. Palak, I will need you to carry Maya once she is found. You're the biggest and the strongest of us all. Neil and Marie will wait at the transport to evacuate the team immediately upon returning," Yuma said. Yuma raised his fist in the air. Nyla did the same, Soon, the entire team had their fists raised into the air and they stood in silence. After a moment, Yima dropped his fist and the team filed towards the transports. The three Waichu soldiers, with Kythorn, Jayla, and Tullak, entered the first transport. Nyla, Yima, Marie, Neon, and Sov entered the second one. The transports shot down the track. Neil watched as the light from the canopy faded away, replaced by the starlight arrays illuminating the track. Everyone was silent. The transport slowed down until it came to a stop. The teams exited the transport and they gathered in the center of the platform. The rescue team checked their magna rifles closely and made sure they were ready to fire. Yima turned to Neil and Marie. He took them to a control panel in between the two transports. This is a calm device. It is set to our signal. You can track us through the jungle. We will contact you when we need you to ready the transports for evacuation. Do not touch anything else, Yima told Neil. He then pointed to a green light and said, That will send an emergency signal to both the Tryon and the Waichu if we are unsuccessful. We must go now. Yuma ruffled Neil's hair. He turned and joined the rest of the rescue team, soft-trailing behind him. Neil watched the team walk to the far edge of the platform and fade into the jungle. He and Marie were alone, together. They sat with their backs up against the transport. The lights flickered just for a moment, and Neil grabbed Marie's hand. Yuma led his rescue team into the jungle, soft-walking behind him. Saf had fully expanded and now towered over Yima. His fiber optic fur glowed deep red and his head swung back and forth, smelling the ground. Yima trailed several feet behind him. On his right were two Waichu soldiers. To Yima's left was Nyla, Talek, and Jayla. Behind them was Kythorn and the other Waichu soldiers. The Waichu lured their night vision goggles onto their four eyes. The jungle glowed a brilliant green through Yima's visor. His four eyes gave him a complete 180 degree view. He looked at a square handheld device with a map and a pulsating dot. The device led the team to Maya's location. The dot pulsed in the rhythmic pattern. Yima pressed on. The simian trees were a single organism. In the jungle interior, the branches of the enormous trees wrapped around each other to support their massive weights. There were streams of water rushing down the trunks of the trees like waterfalls. The path gently sloped downward from branch to branch. The red dot stopped pulsing. Instead it stayed static. The search team was less than 100 feet away from the source of the signal. Yima urged the team forward quickly. They ran to the location of the homing beacon. They stood back to back with their magna rivals pointed in every direction. Maya was not there. Yima ordered Soft to find Maya. Soft grunted and lowered his nose to the ground. He circled the clearing twice before hitting ascent. He slunk down the path, stopped, and laid down. He pointed to a bush. At first it looked like a dead end, but then the bush shook ever so slightly, and Soft's sensitive eyes picked up the movement. Soft huffed twice, signaling to Yuma that he had found Maya. Yuma went to the bush, knelt down, and moved it aside. Below was Maya. Her face was badly cut, and dried yellow blood was caked to her cheeks. Maya's arm was bound in a blood-soaked bandage that she'd made from her shirt. Yuma touched her face. He gripped her head and closed his eyes. He could fear her heart beating. She was alive, but just barely. Yuma motioned for Tog to pick her up. Tog bent down, Jenny picked Maya off the ground and put her into a black sling. Soft jumped up and turned around. He let out a high-pitched shriek like that of a velociraptor. Yima whipped his head around just as he saw a single arrow fly through the sky and hit one of the waichu soldiers in the chest. The arrow pinned the soldier to an ascending branch and killing him. Yima saw a fleet of arrows flying through the sky. Another waichu soldier was hit in the chest and killed. Cartharn was struck in his shoulder by a sleek black arrow. Acting on pure instinct, Kithorn extended his arms and its leathery wings and lifted off the ground. It hovered above the rescue team and started firing its magna rifle in the direction where the arrow was shot. Kythorn and Nyla started firing their magna rifles in every direction. Yuma saw a wall of Daro warriors running and climbing their way towards the search party. Maya was used as a trap. Yuma looked in both directions and he could see the Daros starting to surround them. If they didn't retreat now, the rescue team would be overrun. Run! Yuma yelled. At the beginning of Chapter 13, the Tryan search party traveled back to Simia. One of the rules of wormhole travel is that the wormhole will always open up on the same spot along the wormhole path. The wormhole that brings Neil to Simia always opens at the top of the canopy. One of the questions I've received is why is Nyla helping to find Maya? The Tryan and Waichu are strong allies. Nyla recognizes that Maya is not only revered amongst her people, but she's also one of the most respected beings in all of Simia. Originally, in the Race to Space screenplay, the Trion and the Waichu were enemies, but I didn't like how that played out. I thought in a hostile environment with a common enemy, the three Simian civilizations should be allies. This was one of the most enjoyable chapters to write. I really enjoyed highlighting the evolutionary differences between the Trion, the Waichu, and Kythor and the Ison. The Trion live on the surface of the planet. No light from the sun can make it down that far. And in dark environments, creatures tend to develop really large eyes and their backs are also black, and that's in order to camouflage themselves against the dark. Since the Waichu live at the top of the jungle, they've evolved to have lighter fur that allows them to blend into the canopy. They also need four eyes in order to give them a great range of vision. Kythorn, who's the only eyes On we meet here, was essentially a bat and lives in cave cities. I also love creating Sof. In an environment as dangerous as the Simian jungle, the creatures needed to adapt to their environment. In Soth's case, He has the ability to make himself larger, and he also has the ability to generate bioluminescent life from his body, sort of like fish at the bottom of the ocean. One of the questions I get asked most about is why Neil and Marie had to go with a search party knowing that it was going to be very dangerous. This is one of the only times where there is really no answer, other than to say that this is one of the few instances where I needed to take a fictional license in order to move the story forward. The fact that they are about to face the Dara Horde is a pinnacle point in their lives, like soldiers surviving a battle, So as much as it doesn't make sense, it's still very important. This may sound weird, but I really enjoyed writing the attack by the Daro. I purposely gave the impression that the Daro were nothing more than cavemen. But in this chapter, it shows that they have the ability to set sophisticated traps. The Daro are named after Charles Darwin, and they've splintered off from the Trion thousands of years ago, and they were sent to the interiors of the jungle where it's pitch black. And because they were banished to the dark, they've evolved an allergy to the sun. Chapter 14 Neil and Marie sat next to each other on the platform. Marie rested her head on top of Neil's shoulder and they held each other's hands just as the lights blinked off. The lights came back on briefly then turned off again. Now they were in total darkness. Neil looked up the track and saw that all the lights were out as far as he could see. What just happened? Neil whispered to Marie. The lights, Marie said through clenched teeth. They jumped up and looked at the control panel. It was still on, but all the buttons had completely unrecognizable symbols on them, and the panel monitor had screwing lines of y writing. I don't know what to do, Neil whispered, panicking. I can translate the simian writing for you. There are a pair of glasses with a camera in your father's pack, Ralph said. Neil dropped down, and by the light of the device's screen, rummaged through the pack until he found a pair of glasses with a small camera attached. He put them on and stood back in front of the control panel. Ralph started giving Neil direction on how to fix the lights. An arrow pinged into a tree just above the control panel. Marie instinctively dropped to the ground, even though she couldn't see anything in front of her. She sensed that something was closing in on them. She crawled onto the platform, searching for any kind of weapon. Her hands came across Nyla's starlight apparatus. She felt for the switch and the stick came to life. Marie swung the light stick to the right, and at the edge of the platform, she saw a dozen black hunched figures. The darrow carried bows and arrows and spears. An arrow sliced through the wind and landed at Marie's feet. The darrow horde ran toward her and Neil. Neil pounded away on the control panel feverishly. The wormhole device is at its minimum allowable charge to initiate wormhole. It will only remain stable for 10 seconds, Ralph said. Neil pointed the device away from the oncoming darrow and turned it on. He grabbed Marie and pushed her through. An arrow hit the tree right above the singularity. The next arrow hit the panel to Neil's right Shattering a computer monitor. Marie motioned for Neil to come. The wormhole glowed next to Neil, and the singularity began to close. Through the wormhole was an expanse of white sand and slow rolling waves. Neil closed his eyes and hit a last button on the keyboard. The platform lights exploded into life. Neil could see the platform was covered in arrows. He caught a glimpse of the Darrow Horde, led by the same hulking figure from his vision. They were only 10 feet away from the control panel before the lights caused them to scatter back into the jungle. Marie pulled Neil backward just as the wormhole closed. Neil fell on top of Marie. A dart arrow flew through the closing wormhole and landed an inch from his head. He rolled off of Marie and stared into the sky of this new planet. There were thin clouds rolling along the sky. Neil grabbed a handful of fine white sand. He stood up and scanned the horizon. Behind him were lush, rolling hills, and ahead of him was an azure ocean. Its waves rolled rhythmically back and forth. In the sky was a bright white sun and a smaller red sun. The sky was bisected by sets of rings. Neil looked over to Marie. What is this place? Marie asked. Welcome to Amphibios, Ralph answered. Even though Chapter 14 is pretty short, it is one of the most important chapters in the entire Race Through Space series. And the Darrow attack on the transport platform is the single most important event in Neil and Marie's lives. This is where they go from being shy, nerdy kids to brave, confident young adults. Also in this chapter, it shows more of Ralph's capabilities. Not only can he translate alien languages in real time, but he can translate writing as well. There's actually companies like Google and Microsoft that are working on software that's actually similar to Ralph's. And finally, Neil Murray make their way to the beach world of Amphibios, where the next Race to Space story is set. And now chapter 15, the final chapter in the Race to Space. The search party ran through the Simian jungle Soft was at the front, clearing the path for the fleeing team. Talk was just behind Soft, despite having to carry Maya. All the team needed to do was reach the safety of the starlights on the transport platform. Kylar and Jayla shot their magna rifles as they ran. The Darto closed in on all sides. Soft had cleared the path ahead of him, but he was badly cut and had several arrows sticking from his body. Nyla shot as he ran. Yima faded and fell further behind. He looked at his screen and saw that they were near the platform, but the lights were off. Nyla turned back to shoot and he saw Yima fall to the ground. His legs were struck by a pair of bolas. Nyla stopped and ran back to his friend. He pulled out a knife and cut the bolas off of Yima's ankles and helped him to his feet. They ran as fast as they could through the absolute darkness. Just as Soft reached the platform, it exploded into light and a shriek of pain came from the fleeing Daro horde. Soft collapsed in the center of the platform. Yima sprinted toward the safety of the lights, Nyla just behind him. They had made it to the platform. Yima looked back just as an arrow appeared out of the darkness, hitting Nyla in the center of his back. Yima saw his eyes grow large and he fell to the ground. Yima unleashed a fury of bolts from his magna rifle and ran back to Nyla. He pulled the arrow out of Nyla's back and rolled him over. Pink blood coursed from Nyla's mouth. Yima grabbed Nyla's hand. Nyla's eyes slowly blinked once and then closed. Yima reached down to grip Nyla's head and felt no heartbeat. Nyla was dead. Yuma's eyes teared up as he picked up the Trian leader's lifeless body and carried it to the platform where Talek was cradling Maya in his arms. Yuma watched as Talek's eyes dropped down towards Nila's body. I am so sorry, Yuma said, choking back tears. He died saving my life. Yuma carried Nila's body to the transport and laid him down next to Sof. Sof had deflated and was breathing rapidly. Auburn colored blood seeped from the six arrows hanging from his back. Yuma put his hand on Talek's shoulder. Maya's eyes fluttered open and Ima grabbed hold of Maya's hands as the transport ascended to alone Several weeks later, Yuma returned to the Gallian Palace for Nyla's memorial. It had been many years since he had been there. The beauty of the palace never ceased to amaze him. The interior gleamed with ivory, and on the walls were banners of the great Trian cities, Gallian, Boson, Fermi, and Hirato. He stood next to Tulloch, who held his son in his arms. Ima watched as Maya stepped toward a granite altar. She was dressed in shimmering white robes. Her left arm was still in a sling. She overlooked a crowd of Tryan, Waichu, and Isan citizens. All eyes were on her as she addressed the crowd. Our world is coming to an end. We haven't much time. We have found a new home far from here, and we are embarking on the greatest adventure and most perilous journey in our history. The story of Nyla's sacrifice will live on for generations to come. We can thrive on our new world, but only if we can come together as one. I look out on this gathering, and I don't see Tryan, Waichu, and Isan. On. I only see the peoples of the nylon now let us reflect on the life of our hero and the journeys ahead maya said passionately The crowd silently raised their fists into the air on a desolate brown planet somewhere in the universe stephen huddled around a fire in a dark room he rubbed his hands together and tried to keep warm dr lowell laid in a yellow sleeping bag beside him stephen poked at the fire with a stick while the wind outside roared like a freight train the end when i set about writing the scene for the screenplay I knew I had accomplished two things. First, I had to close out this story, but then I had to set up the next story. So we close out with Maya's speech and Nyla's memorial, and then we conclude the book with our first look into Steven and his current situation. And that's where the next Race to Space will pick up. For the screenplay, the ending of this chapter was a happy one. Everyone survived and moved on, but that just didn't work. And then I had an idea. What if someone didn't make it out alive? I could either kill off Yimar Nyla, and I hated to lose either of them because I loved them so much, but I needed to have one of the main characters die. And in doing so, they were sacrificing their life for something greater than themselves. Not only that, but the death of a major character emphasizes to my readers that this mission will be full of danger, and that there are real lives at stake. And then finally, I establish what lays ahead for the Simian civilizations. Their world is about to die, and they need to come together and build huge wormhole machines so they can escape to their new planet. This is when Maya recognizes that where they're going, they can no longer be three distinct species. In order for them to survive, they all need to come together as one. And frankly, I think that's a good lesson for us all to learn. And there you have it, the very first Race Through Space novella. So far, this project has been a lot of fun for me. Just being able to go back into a story that I haven't touched for a while, and again to revisit my characters and the story. But I'm also a perfectionist and what I'm noticing is that there are all sorts of mistakes throughout the book. I see just how raw my work is. So as I look over the completed manuscript for the next Race to Space book that I just completed, I can't help but marvel about how far I've come and how much I've improved and how much I've learned through this whole process. On our next episode, I'll continue the story on how Kevin Smith's words of wisdom propelled me to get the Race to Space published. Also on the next episode, we start the first few chapters of the Race Through Space 2, The Wave of Time. Race Through Space 2 is still one of my favorite stories that I've ever written. I think it's a different story than the first one. There's a lot of great imagery in there, and I really enjoy the worlds that I've come up with. And for the first time, I get to tell two different stories simultaneously. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you guys like what you're hearing, please go to Chucky Pacific on Facebook and give us a like and a share. You can also go to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble or onto Audible and pick up a copy of any of my books. I always love reviews, so I would really appreciate that. And if you want to shoot me any comments, you can email me at davetherwriter 303 at gmail.com. You can check out my Facebook page at davethewriter303, on Instagram at davidhuck 303 and also on Twitter at davidhuck All right. Take care. Be safe. And if you happen to be outside, take a look up at the stars. The Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast is a Truckee Pacific production. For comments or sponsorship inquiries, please go to Productions at gmail.com.